Hi there. I'm Anna Sargentson. Welcome to Period. Today, we're off to early modern Germany, where 20,000 women were executed on the basis of witchcraft between the 15th and 17th centuries. Buckle up on that broomstick because we have a lot to cover. Witchcraft accusations were a widespread phenomenon across early modern Europe, yet half of all of the cases were tried specifically in Germany. The vast majority, and we're talking about 80% of the accused, were women. Imagine a life of dearth, hunger, disease, and more consumption of alcohol than water. Early modern Germany was a community that was highly reliant on childbearing and fertility where the life expectancy was extremely low, and people often died from unknown causes. So you can really imagine the level of precarity that this would cause in someone's life, and the degree to which one might search for reasons as to why terrible things happen. Without modern medicine, how do you explain the sudden death of a young child? In order to really understand and grasp the community and culture that you're about to walk into, it's essential to really let go of the modern conceptions that you may have. These people did not understand medicine and the human body. They did not communicate widely across geographic areas. And they had no conception of statistics and probabilities. Socially, as a wife and young woman, fertility was central. Your ability to bear a child was directly correlated to your honor and the respect of the community at large. And for this reason, we find women to be a particularly persecuted and misunderstood group in this era. The accusations were most commonly directed towards women that were number one, older, and number two, unmarried. Why is that? Well, firstly, infertility of postmenopausal women was seen as a danger to society, which we can expect given the emphasis on and value in fertility. Older women were often observed to be present in the community, attempting to strengthen ties with their neighbors in search of a sense of belonging. But society was inherently suspicious of them, and if they got too close to someone who eventually became ill, the older woman was the first scapegoat to come to mind. And secondly, unmarried women were more vulnerable to accusation because they were outsiders to the community and were often deemed financially insecure. They lacked a husband to defend their honor or to protect them from suspicion from the wider community. As we know, women can't do anything without the approval of men, right? Women during this period were depicted in popular culture and art as sexually rapacious, but at the same time unable to bear children, a concept that truly encapsulates the central tension of womanhood in early modern society. In line with the fertility narrative, this community had an obsession with voluptuous, full-bodied women who were seen as symbolic of fruitful childbearing. Probably the most widespread art form at the time were wood print images, and they often depicted women with crooked backs long pointed chins, scraggly hair, drooping breasts, and shriveling nipples. Great. Often these old crones, as they were known, would be depicted alongside much younger, firmer, and more supple women. The most outrageous component of beliefs surrounding witchcraft during this period would have to be the good old witch's Sabbath, a nighttime gathering where witches were believed to join the devil for a feast and perhaps some casual fornication. These were nights of heavy drinking, eating, and dancing, and it was believed that the witches traveled across Europe, 
riding bareback on a goat, a phallic rod, a stick, or large fork. You heard that right, a large fork. As you might imagine, there are some hypersexualized innuendos in this. And as historian Lindahl Roper says, the Sabbath acted as, quote, a fantasy of sexual abandon. The ride to the Sabbath was often described as orgasmic, which is obviously, you know, strange. Iconography in the woodcut prints that I mentioned before, like fire depicted in the genital region, was similarly representative of women's sexual hunger and desire. While there was a lot of pain and suffering to arise from this historical moment, Maria Hull, a woman who became known as the heroine of her town, was lauded as a figurehead of resistance. She was a financially independent innkeeper, whose success made many people in the town jealous. This woman courageously contested her accusation and did not confess to her charge despite 62 rounds of extreme torture, occurring over the course of an entire year. As she continued to resist, more and more people became convinced that she was innocent. Her case was ultimately the last to be tried in her town of Nordlingen, Germany, and that really says something about the power and agency in one rejecting their prescribed role in society. And it's not that the tens of thousands of women who confessed to things that they did not do and then died for them were weak. We have to remember how societal norms, coupled with a fundamental lack of understanding of how the world worked, would have had an impact on mobility for older and unmarried women. And for this, Maria Hull was the exception to the norm. There are many overarching themes that we can identify in the treatment of women during this period and accusations of witchcraft. The value of fertility, married life, and scapegoating of women in an effort to cope with various other social ills out of control of the population are not unique concepts across historical time and space. And particularly in the case of witchcraft, it is important to identify the tension between an expectation of women's fertility, the uncontrollable aging of her body, and society's condemnation of women's sexual desires. Next month, we're headed over to Spain in 1939. We'll discuss an organization of women under the umbrella of the Franco regime who wielded agency, yet were anything but feminist. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our monthly escapades.